chapter 7, verses 17 through 14 is where we're going to pitch, uh, I'm sorry, 17 through 24 is where we're going to pitch our tent on this morning. We are getting back into this series, The Grime and the Glory of the Church. Uh, the grime and glory of the church, that's what we have uh, basically uh, titled this uh, walk through 1 Corinthians. And, 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 and you, if, you've, if you've been with us, uh, last time we were together, we, uh, we stopped in, in the middle of a walk through uh, Paul's thoughts on marriage and singleness. Um, and, and we are still actually in those thoughts, but Paul takes somewhat of a, of a small detour. It's not really a detour because he's still dealing with the issue of marriage, but it, it's, it, it has broader implications that we want to focus on on this morning. You know, when some of us first came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were, uh, were, were sometimes told or, or maybe we even sometimes assumed that not only are our spiritual lives about to change, but our physical status in this life is about to change for the better as well. You know, we often come to faith with this expectation um, that because Christ is God, which he is, and I'm now a servant of this Christ, a servant of God, which I am, then he is going to raise me to a glorious status in this life. In other words, the marriage that I always dreamed of is going to happen. The, the career that I always wanted to uh, always want it is going to happen immediately. The companion that I've been searching for is finally going to find me. And I mean, why wouldn't all those things happen? The Christ, um, the one who is called Christ and who is God, has called me his own, and now I am his servant. So why wouldn't all those things happen for the servants of God or for the children of God? And this text that we're reading this morning is intended to help us come to grips with the reality that that does not always happen. But even more importantly, what it helps us come to grips with or what it helps us do is helps us understand what to do when this does not happen. Does that make sense? At all. Some of you are like, I thought that was going to happen. What are you talking about? All right. So... Let's start with verse 17 because this is an expectation that many of us carry into this life that I'm sorry to report if this is the first of you hearing it, is a false expectation. The first thing we need to understand is that God calls us oftentimes to unfavorable conditions. He calls us to unfavorable conditions. Verse 17, it says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Lead a life that God has assigned to him. Lead a life that God has called him to. You know, when you look through Scripture, it is clear that our gifting and our talents are appointed sovereignly by God. They're assigned to us. They're given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good. Our spiritual gifting is assigned by God to profit the common good. So, so that, that's an assumption that many Christians would say yes and amen to with no problem at all. 
And also when you look through Scripture, it is clear that our ministries are appointed sovereignly by God as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, But we will not boast beyond our limits, this is Paul speaking, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. So God has assigned an area of influence to Paul and to others. In other words, there is a sphere of influence that is ultimately assigned to us, no matter how big or how small it is, and God is behind the scenes determining where that all goes and where you go with that. In other words, we have been assigned our gifting and our talent. We have been assigned sovereignly the ministry in which God entrusts us to. However, one thing that may be sometimes difficult to come to terms with is the reality that not only are our giftings and our ministries assigned to us by God, but even our unique situations and positions in life are assigned by God. Meaning if you are in a favorable position or even in an unfavorable position in life, it is not necessarily the result of God not being with you. Does that make sense? You know, take, for example, the position that Paul most likely has in mind when he, when he raises this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Corinthian Christian who is now married to an unbeliever. A Corinthian comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and instead of the rest of their family joining them in this newfound faith, this new believer's relationship with Jesus could, in fact, totally disrupt the dynamic of their home and the dynamic of their family to the point of driving the unbelieving spouse farther away from Jesus. Now, natural law and popular wisdom would say, well, you guys have just grown apart, so just leave. You go your way and they go their way and let that be that. But Paul would say, no, God has assigned you there. As long as there is no unfaithfulness in the form of sex or abuse, God, in fact, has purpose for you and still can use you in that marriage. But say that this new relationship with Jesus is so disruptive to the wants and the desires of the unbelieving spouse that they decide that they have had enough and they leave the marriage. Paul's words are still just as shocking and unnatural to the cultural wisdom of the day. Because what he, in fact, says here is that one who finds themselves in such a situation that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 need not despair because this could very well be an assignment from God as well. That's difficult to listen to. That's difficult to hear. In fact, we too often look at the people whose lives are being lived in the most favorable conditions as the only ones that have God's blessing, don't we? We see the wealthy, we see the healthy, we see the beautiful, we see the popular, we see the powerful, we see the well-liked, we see the well-positioned, and we say to ourselves, God's hand is really on them. And when we say that, what we're not saying is, and God's hand really ain't on all these other people who aren't like them. And for many of them, the healthy, the wealthy, the popular, the beautiful, the, the, the powerful. It could be true. God's hand really could be on them. But let me be clear. God's hand is no less on the single mother 
who's faithfully walking with Jesus while working two jobs and caring for a child with special needs. You know, we may look at that mother and say, well, you know, I mean, I guess God is with No, no, God's hand is no less on her than God's hand is on the others in which we've mentioned. This idea that God's hand is upon them is no less true for the man who has sacrificially loved Jesus and sacrificially loved his wife, but, 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 but she has abandoned him for another man who makes her laugh more. God, it is, the, the truth is no less true for, for some of you in this room or listening online who are struggling at this very moment to make ends meet and, and, and keep bills paid. It is, it is no less true for many of you who are struggling in your bodies each and every single passing moment and you're pressing through the pain and you're pressing through the tears and you're pressing through the suffering to give God praise, glory, and honor. It is no less true that God's hand is on on you than it is on any of the others in which we've mentioned before. See, God's hand can be on those whose physical conditions are favorable, but time and time again, and scripture after scripture has shown us that his hand can also be on those whose conditions are not favorable. And Paul's point is, even in the midst of less than ideal circumstances, God can be very present with us and not only be very present, but be very at work empowering us to live in those circumstances, bringing him glory and bringing him honor. In the midst of trying conditions, this is what we must remember. We must remember that God has not lost control, nor has God lost sight of us. He has not forgotten about us. He is present with us and he is sovereign over us and over all of our situations and conditions, whether they be favorable or unfavorable. You know, there are times when we are in less than ideal situations and conditions and whether those situations or conditions be social, whether they be career, whether they be financial, whether they be marital, whatever. And the only question that we seem to be concerned with is, how do I get out of this unfavorable condition? There are times when even when the, there are times where the situations are actually not bad. They're actually pretty good, but they're not perfect. And because they're not perfect, we're still fixed. We're still fixing all of our attention on the one question. How can I get out of this and get to the perfect place? However, God is challenging us in this word to introduce another question into the calculation, and that is this. We must replace the first question of how can I get out of this situation, position, or circumstance with how can the Lord get glory out of me in this situation, position, or circumstance? Does that make sense? The first question is not, how do I get out of these conditions? The first question is, how do I live for Jesus while I am in the condition? How do I bring glory and honor to Christ while my spouse is unbelieving? How do I show them the love of Christ and lead my children well by example through that? How do I bring glory and honor to Christ in the job that I have today? Not the job that I want 
but the job that I have today and how do I show forth this glory amongst my coworkers in that job right now? How do I bring glory and honor to Christ in my current financial situation? How do I, how do I show that he's worthy even when I don't have a lot? How do I best bring him glory and honor when I have more than enough? How do I live for him in a sacrificial way when I have more than enough to demonstrate that my trust is not in riches, but it is in Jesus? You know, Joni Erickson Tata is um, possibly one of the most godly women of this generation. Um, she suffered a horrific accident at the age of 17, leaving her paralyzed from the shoulders down and making her a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. Today, at 72 years old, she is probably considered one of the most important voices on Christian suffering and disability and, 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 and living through Christian suffering or living through suffering and disability as a Christian. She is the founder and the CEO of Joni and Friends. She has had, uh, she has had for the last 40 years a five-minute radio show that is heard each, day, uh, each weekday on about a thousand broadcast outlets, and she is the author of nearly 50 books on the topic of Christianity and suffering, and she has been paralyzed from the waist down for the last 55 years. This is a woman who understands the question, how can I bring God glory in my present unfavorable circumstances? She once spoke of the dueling purposes of God and Satan in our unfavorable circumstances. This is what she says. Listen closely. She says this, quote, the truth of the matter is Satan and God may want the exact same event to take place, but for different reasons. Satan's motive in Jesus' crucifixion was rebellion. God's motive was love and mercy. Satan was a secondary cause behind the crucifixion, but it is God who ultimately wielded and allowed Satan to carry it out. And the same holds true for suffering. Are you tracking with that? I know that's heavy, folks. But there are times, we see it in Job, we see, it in the, we see the evidence in Job where Satan comes to God and he says, hey, I'm look, looking for someone to test and God's, God offers Job. Have you considered my servant Job? In other words, God wills Job to enter into this test with Satan. Satan has one reason for the test, but God has another. And the same can be said for you over and over and over again in your life. God doesn't need favorable circumstances to use you. God doesn't need favorable circumstances to do what he wants to do in you as it relates to sanctifying you. In fact, as Joni Erickson Tata would say, God often uses suffering as the gym equipment to work out our faith. So no, no matter what your circumstance looks like, Paul is saying live your life for glory in that circumstance. And Paul offers support for why he says this. Because Paul knows that what he's saying is extremely hard teaching to subscribe to. What do you mean live, live my life in this situation? Do you understand this situation? And so Paul offers up two supporting statements to help us understand that he is no, in, in no way misspeaking, nor is he in any way confused about what he is calling us to. 
The first statement is in verse 17, at the end of verse 17. He says, verse 17, look again, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Listen to this. This is my rule in all the churches. In every church, this is my rule. This is not something that is unique to this Corinthian church in this Corinthian season. This is the call of every single Christian in every single church that I travel and visit to or, or visit. You are bound at some point in your Christian life to enter unfavorable circumstances. Maybe you get saved, but your spouse doesn't. Maybe you get looked over continuously for a job or a promotion. Maybe, uh, maybe you or a loved one gets deathly ill. You are bound at some point in your Christian life to enter unfavorable circumstances. And Paul's encouragement to you is the same encouragement he's giving the Corinthian church right now about their unbelieving spouses that have rejected, rejected the faith and rejected them. Paul's encouragement is to use the initial energy and use most of your energy to focus on walking in this condition in such a way that you bring God glory and honor. And that is an encouragement that is not limited to one church in Corinth. That is an encouragement that is for all the saints all across the world throughout all of time. Now the second supporting statement that Paul uses to help us understand he is not confused at all is in verse 18. Pick it up with me there. It says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So in order to really drive home this point that Paul has, he puts in front of us one of the most important measures of cultural and social status in all of Jewish tradition and custom. As a Jewish man, this is one of the important markers of status. This is a marker of community. This is a marker of covenant fellowship in the community. This says whether you're in or whether you're out. One theologian describes these words in verse 19, circumcision counts for nothing nor uncircumcision, as one of the most amazing sentences that Paul ever wrote. He continues by saying this. He says, indeed, it is hard to imagine a more un-Jewish statement than Paul's opening words in this verse. Circumcision counts for nothing nor uncircumcision. To many within Paul's tradition, circumcision was not only something, circumcision was everything practically. It was the mark that you were in. It was the mark that you belonged to the covenant community. And so to discount it was to in many ways reject everything, reject the family's traditions, reject the cultural values, reject your social, uh, social status. This is so countercultural, but not just for Paul and the Corinthians, but for us as well. You see, our culture is all about answering two questions. Who are you and who are you becoming? Who are you and who are you becoming? That's the only questions we're concerned with in the culture. Who are you and who are you becoming? And all of our energy is devoted to answering those questions favorably. And even Christians get sucked up in that, where we're devoting all of our energy to show someone what? That I am somebody and I'm going somewhere. 
We want, we want to answer those questions favorably. We, and we want to do it with autonomy. In other words, we want to do it with complete and total freedom because that's the culture of the day. And we want to do it with ambition. Why? Because that's the culture of the day. And so we wrap all of our energy in exercising freedom to become somebody. Somebody in which we get to define ourselves no matter how fantastical that definition is. But we also want to see, or we also want to use as much energy as possible, exercising ambition to become somebody. And we are constantly bombarded by this and hit by this, whether it be in the ads on the TV, whether it be by celebrities, whether it be by social media telling us to go and get more so we can bolster our status and become somebody. Because that's what matters in this life. But into that philosophical quicksand walks the Apostle Paul, and he basically declares that in Christ, your status in your community, your status in your family, your status in your career, your status amongst your peers is not the ultimate thing anymore. And if not, then what is? Verse 19, he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. But keeping the commandments of God. See, the most important status change in my life is the status change from enemy of God to friend of God. When everything is said and done, what will matter is not that you were wealthy or poor, what will matter is not whether you were sick or healthy. What will matter is whether you were what? An enemy of God or a friend of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in light of the most important status change, the most important actions that we can pursue is not the actions of changing our status from poor to rich or are the actions of changing our status from single to married or the actions of changing our status from employee to CEO. Rather, the most important actions that we can pursue is simply doing the will of God. Circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. What counts? Doing the will of God. Walking in the commandments of God. Paul is saying because you are now a child of God, your status has changed, and that is the status that matters. And so because that's the status that matters, the actions that you perform and the pursuit that you, are, that you are on should reflect that and flow out of it. The actions that should flow out of that status is the pursuit to walk in the will and in the way of Jesus. That's what matters. That's where you devote your energy. That's where you devote your time. That's where you devote your focus. That's where you devote your passion and your heart. Paul takes this further in verse 20, verses 20 through 23. Flip with me there. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is, the free, is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 
Paul shows us the insignificance here of worldly status in the kingdom. And he does so by flattening the statuses. You see what he did there? Are you in bondage in the world system? Paul says, remember that you are free in Jesus. So in other words, what for those who are low, God elevates. He brings up. You see that? But then he says, are you in bondage in the world system? I'm sorry. Yeah. He says, are you free in the world system? Remember, you belong to Jesus. In other words, you are a bond servant to Jesus. So for those who are high, he does what? Bring low. In several places of scripture, we see this flattening of our social and natural and earthly statuses. We hear it in James, the brother of Jesus, when he declares in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says that my brothers, uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? What is he doing? James is flattening the statuses. Doesn't matter what you are out there. You come in, we're all one status, children of God. Does that make sense? And so stop living your life trying to elevate statuses that don't matter in the kingdom. Jesus, the brother of James, and the Savior of the world says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, so the last will be first. The first shall be last. We hear this over and over and over again. We see it even in, even in Jesus' parables when he tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And here on earth, Lazarus has no name. The rich man has a name. But Jesus tells the story well, the poor man is the one he names. The rich man doesn't have a name. What is he doing? He's showing us that the statuses are flattened in the kingdom. He says the rich man had everything, every good thing in this world. And then he, then he uh, but he didn't have Christ, and so he goes to hell. He says the poor man didn't even have a name. He, didn't, he, was, he was eating what was tossed to him at the city gates. And yet he goes to heaven with the name in the bosom of Abraham, which he abides forever. You, you, do you understand that? He's basically making the point. That the, that the statuses here on earth do not matter in the kingdom. Now, side note here. Notice what Paul says in verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That's an important statement because what Paul is saying here is that our contentment with our status in God is not a call to just remain in an unfavorable position just for the sake of remaining in an unfavorable position. Does that make sense? If there's a way to remain in his will and get out of an unfavorable situation, then Paul says, by all means, go ahead. Go for it. 
In other words, for those who are sick, we don't reject the therapies and the treatments and the, the, the prayers for healing because we're saying to ourselves, well, this is my lot in life to just be sick. It's not Paul, that's not Paul's argument here. For those who are in, un, in an unfavorable position that won't adequately pay for our necessities. Paul's not saying reject the opportunities and the prayers to further develop your skills and further develop your knowledge and further develop your marketability in order to, in order to position yourself for better career opportunities. That's not what he's saying. He's saying just make sure that that doesn't get in front of the pursuit to do the will of God. Paul's call to be content with being in God is not a call to not pursue better positions. His call is a call to not be so moved by the pursuit for the better position that it distracts you and disrupts you from pursuing God's glory right where you are right now. His call is to, his call is to not be so moved by it that it distracts you and, and, and disrupts you, or better yet, that it fools you into believing that God can't use you for his glory right where you are right now. Whatever the condition is, whatever the situation is, God can use you. So lastly, how can he do it? Verse 24, look there. So brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Herein lies the key to doing this. We remain in the condition, but we don't remain in the condition by ourselves. We remain in the condition with God. In other words, we remain in the condition with the empowerment and the strength of God. How do I stay in, 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 in just this unfair? favorable condition, whether it be this unfavorable job or, and, and still have joy, the joy of the Lord and the, and the hope of the Lord and the peace of the Lord, the Spirit will aid us. The Spirit will empower us. The Spirit will strengthen us. As we continue to look to the Spirit, as we continue to lean on the Spirit, as we continue to depend on the Spirit, as we continue to rely on the Spirit, as we continue to seek the help of the Spirit, Sometimes we simply have not because we ask not. Sometimes we don't have the strength to stand in those unfavorable moments because we haven't asked for the strength to stand in, this, in those unfavorable moments. Are you praying while you are in this unfavorable condition? Are you praying while you are dealing with relational issues that are not favorable? Are you praying while you are dealing with career conditions that are not favorable? Are you praying for strength while you are in physical conditions that are not favorable? God with us. Is how we can remain in the condition and continue to pursue his will and glory through it. But also, let him remain with God is the idea that, yes, he's empowering us, but remembering that he, he is also went ahead of us. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we talk about being with God, that we're remembering the promises of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, what? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. You guys have heard me say on many, on many occasions that God does not waste our tears. God does not waste your tears. 
Meaning that even when you don't see what he's doing and preparing you and preparing you for eternity in your unfavorable seasons and conditions in life, it does not mean that he isn't doing something. All things are working together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I quote uh, uh, Miss, Miss, Miss Erickson Tata again, Joni Erickson Tata. She says, we will stand amazed someday to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. God is, it's like God has this, this massive, beautiful blanket. And sometimes we're just looking at the threads. And some of those threads have what appears to be very ugly colors. We say to ourselves, I don't know what he's going to do with this. It's a ter- this is a terrible color for a blanket. Terrible color for a tapestry. But then as, as he finishes weaving it all together, we stand back from it. And we say, oh, my goodness, now I see. And that's what heaven is, right? That's what eternal life is. It's forever standing back and gazing at the completed work and say, oh, now I see. I didn't see it then. I didn't understand what he was doing then. But now I see it clearly. Amen? I mean, most of us are holding one piece in a one million piece puzzle. And looking at it and turning it in different ways and saying, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. You know what I mean? What am I going to do with this? What, what are we going to do with this? What can he do with this? Not realizing that there, there's a million-piece puzzle that he's building. And in eternity, we get a chance to view the puzzle in its completeness. We get a chance to see this beautiful picture that he was putting together the whole time. And so that, when we talk about that, that we live in these conditions with God, this is part of what it means to live in these conditions with God, that our eyes are fixed on the fact that God has promised us something. Amen? He's promised us a completed work, and so we must continue to fix our attention on that promise. Lastly, what does it mean to live in these conditions with God? It means to recognize that that Christ has empowered us, It means to recognize that Christ has gone ahead of us in terms of what he's preparing for us in the future. But it also means that he has gone before us. What do I mean by that? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does it mean that Christ went before us? It means that when you think about living in unfavorable conditions, unfavorable circumstances, whether it be suffering in your body, whether it be broken relationships that just don't seem to be getting right and fixed, whether it be social status uh, or whether it be poverty or, 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 or not necessarily poverty but just struggling to get by, you can look to your Savior and you can be reminded that he entered into this world and walk this life 
in unfavorable conditions. The Bible says that he was God, and yet he took on the form of a servant. There were times in which he declared to those that were listening, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was betrayed by friends. He knows what relational brokenness looks like. He did not have a lot of money, contrary to what some people may tell you. His parents at his birth offered a poor man and poor woman's sacrifice to demonstrate that they did not have wealth. He faced injustice. You say, well, what, I mean, but, 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 I, but, I, but I've been treated wrong. He knows that. He's been there. He's seen that. He's done that. He's walked that path ahead of you. He's walked it before you. All the way to the, all the, way to the cross. He carried his own cross to the hill called Calvary. And they hung him there where he bled and where he died. Jesus Christ lived in unfavorable circumstances. And he lived in those unfavorable circumstances to the glory of God the Father. And because he lived in those unfavorable circumstances all the way to the point of death, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because he lived in those unfavorable circumstances and he walked through obedience in those unfavorable circumstances, he has been elevated. And he has won his bride. Saints of God, I'm telling you that there are, this life will present unfavorable circumstances for you. This life probably is already presenting unfavorable circumstances for you in one way or another. But live with God in those unfavorable circumstances. And when it's all said and done, you will reap the reward, you will reap the promise you, if you follow your Savior through suffering. Follow your Savior through those unfavorable conditions. You will follow him right through those unfavorable conditions into glory. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you all the thanks and praise. We 